We are continuing in our series on righteousness. This is our third series on words of life as we've gone through this year. Uh, we've started into, this is the second to last in our series on righteousness as, an, as, of course, an extension of who God is. We've talked about God at the beginning. We talked about a lot of his personality and his attributes and his name. Uh, and then we talked about his truth and how he's revealed that to us. And as we talk about righteousness, last week we talked about sin, uh, which again is a natural extension of righteousness. The opposite of righteousness would be sin. And then we come to the, again, inevitable conclusion of that, which is the consequence of sin. Really, again, stemming from righteousness. And the concept of wrath, which we're going to talk about this morning, is not a pleasant one. This is not a nice thing to think about, right? Nobody likes, I should say nobody, no one should like thinking about God's wrath. And if you do enjoy it, let me suggest you do not have the right idea about it. You just don't. Some people are really sort of, they, they like the idea of God's punishment of the wicked and his wrath. And I understand that to a certain degree. But it should not be an enjoyable idea because of what it entails. Now, as we do with anything, we, I've talked about this. Oh, no, we will talk about this on Wednesday night in our class on how to study the Bible. We should take note of wrath specifically because it is mentioned so often in Scripture. His wrath. Sometimes it's the word anger, right? Uh, depend, there's a couple of different uh, original language words for anger and wrath. And even in English, of course, those have sort of different connotations. But when God repeatedly discusses an idea, what does that mean? That means he thinks it's important, just like us. If I talk about the same thing all the time, that means I think that it's important. Or I, I like it, maybe. But I think it's important when I mention the same things over and over in these sermons. Because this is what God has done. He has consistently warned us. And when I say us, I mean his people. Not just the church, right? But this applied to Old Testament, the Israelites, the kingdom of Israel. This has applied to not just to the Israelites, but to any time he has had a relationship with people. He has warned them, warned us about his wrath. We could even think about places like Psalms, which you think Psalms are great. They're nice. It's a songbook of Israel and a lot of songs and praising and worshiping. And yet even in the Psalms, we find his wrath. Psalm 2, uh, 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, this is an interesting Psalm, Psalm 2, uh, sort of a dual meaning here between the king, the son, being maybe the son of the king, of course, as that applies to David and his context and the king of Israel, be paying attention to the king of Israel or his wrath. But of course, we know that this psalm, other places in this psalm, are looking forward to Jesus, the son, that he would made a little lower than the angels. Temporarily, that's the Hebrew writer quoting this, referring to, I think, the wrath of Jesus coming contrasted with those who take refuge in him. Jeremiah 10.10, 10, The Lord is the true God. He is the living and everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and nations cannot endure his indignation. Indignation, again, we have a bunch of different words that sort of group together. Anger and, and wrath and indignation, sort of a negative emotion, right, that is a consequence of what somebody has done the way that he feels about particular actions. Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, he, he just got done listing a bunch of things that people do, 
anger, wrath, malice, and sort of interesting, our anger included in the list, uh, envy and clamor and slander and, and uh, all sorts of different things that, that people do that are wrong. Again, unrighteousness, sin, contrasted with God's nature, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Disobedience to what? Disobedience to his righteousness. Those who do not obey his righteousness, the inevitable outcome is wrath. Like holiness, righteousness, and love. All three things we've talked about in this series. Things that we like talking about, maybe, that are pleasant to talk about. Holiness, righteousness, and love. Some of the aspects of God that we like, perhaps. But wrath is an integral part of his being. It is an outpouring of who he is, just like holiness and righteousness and love. And, and it, we should understand this. There is an inherent, I think, part of us, made in the image of God, that understands wrath as a function of his personality, the righteous outrage at injustice and wrongdoing and cruelty. You feel it and I feel it. When we see people who are mistreated, People who are doing wrong and getting away with it. Doesn't that bring some wrath to you? Now, maybe you're not a very wrathful person. Maybe you're not really an angry person. I understand that. Some people just are not that way as much. But I think we should understand God's desire to bring justice to the wicked. Because we have that desire to bring justice to the wicked. And yet, while the Greek word for righteousness could also be translated justice, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the concept of wrath implies a deeper commitment to justice than just a legal obligation. This is not an impersonal sort of uh, 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 clinical sort of punishment, right? Wrath as a concept, as a word, implies an emotional component, right? It's not just you did the bad thing and now you're, you're punished for it and it's sort of impersonal thing. It angers God when we sin. It is emotional to him. God has emotions, just like we do. I should actually phrase that the other way. We have emotions, just like God does. Anger is one of those things. His commitment to righteousness is not clinical. It is personal. Because righteousness, again, is not some objective thing that sort of exists in the ether. Righteousness comes from who he is. And therefore, unrighteousness, disobedience, sin, is anything that is against his nature. And then wrath, then, the, the consequence for sin, is again part of his nature. It comes from who he is. Wrath is an extension of holiness and righteousness. Because there is a standard that is broken, his standard. There is a consequence for that according to, again, his standard. The wrath that comes from his holiness. Which brings us to the reading that, that Keith read, Nahum 1, 2 through 3. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Jealous and avenging attributes that we would not typically associate as good, right? We would not typically associate those as good things. I should not be jealous. I should not be avenging. But the Lord is, and of course, he has the right to be that way because he is righteous. I'm not righteous. So my jealousy, my vengeance is inevitably going to be flawed because of my unrighteousness. And not only am I unrighteous, I'm imperfect and I don't have all the knowledge that God has, right? His jealousy and avenging 
Ness, vengeance, that's the word. His vengeance comes from a place of perfection. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Now, it's interesting. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And I find it interesting the end here. Because as I'm reading this, it should kind of be but. It feels like it should be but the Lord. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His wrath comes from that part of him that we have inside of us that the guilty, especially those who are cruel and those who meet, mistreat others and those who are, who are hurting those around us, they deserve some measure of punishment. We understand that. God understands that. That's, it comes from him. He is slow to anger, but the, that does not mean that he has no anger. His anger is reserved then, of course, for those who deserve it. His adversaries, his enemies, the guilty. Which would be who? Who's his adversaries and his enemies? Who's the guilty? If we think about our past two sermons, those who violate his righteousness. Those are the adversaries. Romans 2, 5 through 11. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Because his wrath, again, is part of an extension of his righteousness, which is defined by his very nature. There's no partiality. He does not break his own nature. There is consequence for evil doing, consequence for unrighteousness, and it is wrath and fury, and it will be doled out to each one according to what? According to our works. How are we living? Now, how, is, how will his wrath manifest on the day of wrath? What does that mean? What does that entail? We can see how his wrath manifests as we trace his dealings with humans throughout history. Again, every human, uh, every human that he has instituted a relationship with, we see wrath as a component of that relationship. In the beginning, wrath meant Adam and Eve were cast from the garden to have harder lives and eventual death. You have to work the ground now. It was going to be so easy for you here. But his wrath and his sense of righteousness has what? Not only did he cast them out, but what else did he do? He put the angel in front of the garden with the flaming sword. He can't come back. That's his wrath. In the flood, his wrath compelled him to start over. Not all the way, right? But who is saved? Noah and his family who obeyed righteousness, who were, who were doing the things that God wanted them to do. And of course, everybody else, we're done with that. In the Exodus, his wrath against the Egyptians was powerful. I like what it says. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. We see his power in the wrath against the Egyptians. The ten plagues culminating in the death of the firstborn. Against Israel, his wrath manifested as loss in war and exile, that they were conquered and taken away. 
And again, how many times did he warn them over and over, warn them against, hey, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Turn it around. Repent. Come back to me. Do what I want. Be with, be doing the things that are righteous over and over, generation upon generation, over a period of hundreds of years. He warned them time and again, wrath is coming. And then it came in the conquest and exile. God's righteousness, as we see throughout history, how it manifests the destruction of wickedness. And that's maybe too abstract. Not just the destruction of wickedness as a concept. The destruction of the wicked is how his wrath manifests. Not just in now and in our context, but in all of the contexts that God has ever dealt with people. That's how his wrath manifests. Destruction of the wicked. These are all elements, of course, of the wrath that is to come. The wrath that we are not waiting for, perhaps, but the wrath that we are expecting will come. Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, Therefore, as the Lord says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In their context, of course, what? He's looking back towards the wilderness wanderings, the wrath that his, uh, manifested against their rebellion, the rebellion of what? No, we can't go into that land. God's, uh, God will die if we go in there. They're too strong. We can't do it. We're so weak. Ah, what was us? Well, what it is wrath manifest as? Fine. Go wander around till y'all die. That was it. That was his wrath, right? You will literally go walk around the desert until you all die. Because you hardened your heart. Because you were unwilling to do what I wanted. Because you were unwilling to trust in my providence. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, the rest of the land of Canaan. This is, as the Hebrew writer goes on, we're not going to read it. I would encourage you in Hebrews 3 and 4. The same expectation for us. If we harden our hearts, we do not trust in his providence. We do not take the risks that are associated with faith to live the kind of life that he wants us to live, to obey his righteousness. What is the manifestation of wrath? We do not get to enter the rest. The rest, of course, for us being heaven. Instead of wandering around for 40 years and then dying, it won't be that. Although it is kind of like that here on earth. It will be what? The opposite of the rest will be not just death, but something worse. Isaiah 13, 9 through 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake out of its place and the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of its fierce anger. Now, there's a bit of a, of course, Isaiah talking about in symbolic language the destruction that's coming on Israel. But for us, we know that this also is coming, right? The end of all things. Destruction of the world and everything that is done on it, as in the flood, but worse. As in the captivities, but worse. The wrath that is to come contains all the same elements as his wrath always has. 
Destruction of the wicked, punishment for the unrighteous, suffering for those who would not obey. That is what we are expecting, the wrath that is to come. The wrath that has been promised not just once or twice, but many times by Jesus and his apostles and the prophets over and over and over, the promise, the expectation of wrath and fury for those who do not obey righteousness. This is our problem. Sin is not our problem. The wrath that sin produces is our problem. Sin would be, I, I don't want to say fine, sin would be nothing to worry about if it did not bring attendant wrath from God. The destruction that God's holiness and righteousness demands, that is our problem. That if we do not submit to his righteousness, submit to his will, and do our best, there awaits for us wrath, not from Satan, but from our creator. Because of his holiness and righteousness. And so it's strange as we think about our wrapping it up here. It's strange to include sin and wrath in a series called Words of Life, as we've been discussing on Sunday mornings this year. Words of life, sin and wrath are not really words of life, are they? But understanding what sin is, why God hates it, and its outcome. You have to have all three of those. What sin is, defined by his righteousness, why God hates it because of who he is, and its outcome, wrath are essential, all essential parts of the gospel message. The power of the gospel is in God's desire for us to avoid his wrath. And, and in some sense, everything that God has done, everything that he has done throughout the entire Bible, throughout all of history, is so that we can avoid his wrath. Wrath that he knows is coming, wrath that is an inevitable part of who he is, but everything that he's done from the beginning of creation is to give us a chance to avoid that wrath. It is the impetus, the driving force of his love. His love manifesting as all these things because he knows that the outcome is wrath. John 3, 33 through 36. Forever receives his testimony and sets his seal uh, to this, that God is true for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. That is Jesus, right? For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loved the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. That word remains is an interesting word because it implies what? That the state of wrath is the default. The state of wrath is the normal. Believing in Jesus is the thing that removes the wrath from us because wrath is inevitably upon us. Because as we looked at several weeks ago, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have broken his righteousness. And so God's wrath is the urgency of the gospel message, the urgency of what we preach, the urgency of why you should talk to your coworkers and your friends and your family is because the wrath of God is coming. How do we avoid it is the core of the gospel. Romans 5, 6 through 11, this will be our last verse. For while we were still weak, 
while the wrath of God remained upon us, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a Perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Sinners, therefore what? Sinners who deserved wrath. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much or much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if we were, while we were still enemies, that word enemies, why is that important? What did Nahum say? Who pours out wrath on his enemies? Who destroys his enemies? If while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation. To take us out of the wrathful state, the state that deserves wrath. Those of us who are bearing the wrath of God. Reconciled means what? He no longer feels that wrath towards us. That wrath has been removed by the the justification that comes through Jesus. And now we stand reconciled, experiencing not his wrath, but his what? His joy and his love and his blessing. His providence. Through who? Through Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to talk about Christ. That's our word for next week. The only avenue by which we can avoid the wrath of God, Christ, our Savior.